India's national election results were declared last week and the Narendra Modi led NDA has returned to power with an even larger mandate than in 2014. What can and should they be doing over the next 5 years? What should be the government's top priorities? Narayan Ramachandran returns to the Pragati podcast to discuss what should be the agenda for NDA 3.0. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics, and international relations. I'm your host, Pavan Srinath. The Indian economy in 2019 is not one that is in crisis, but one that has chronic problems. There is a hundred billion dollar hole in our banking system. India needs to be creating 20 million jobs a year, but we are barely managing a tenth of it. An overwhelming number of Indians are still dependent on agriculture and locked in cycles of poverty, debt, and abysmal productivity. How should all of this reflect in the new government's agenda? Narayan Ramachandran talks to us today about India's most pressing challenges and to its potential solutions as well. Narayan is co-founder and fellow at the Takshashila Institution. He is a former head of Morgan Stanley in India, the former chairman of RBL Bank, an emerging market investor, and more. I usually find macroeconomics to be quite voodoo but Narayan has a gift of explaining macroeconomic concepts that has made his past episodes in the Pragati podcast among the most popular. He has been on episodes 38, 40 and 60 on the show talking about our banking crisis, our medium term economic challenges, the rupee and the geopolitics and the geoeconomics that can affect it and a lot more. We'll start our conversation with Narayan after a short break. This episode of the Pragati podcast is brought to you by Savari. Savari is a fantastic cab rental service, perfect for when you want to head out to the city for a few days or when you want to cab with you for a few hours as you go from one engagement to another in town. I use Savari often and they have a variety of cars and packages to pick and choose from. Savari has excellent chauffeurs and 24 by 7 customer support. Use the coupon code IVM Travel for 250 bucks off on your next rental and get another 300 off as cashback on Amazon Pay. You can book your cab on savari.com on the Savari mobile app or via their call center. Hi Narayan, welcome back to the Pragati podcast. Uh this is your first visit here in 2019 and it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you Bhavan, great to be here. Uh Narayan, we are recording this on Monday and we are doing this after a historic election where um the Narendra Modi led NDA government has given has been given a even higher mandate to come back into power and govern us for the next 5 years. So given that um not only is there this big mandate behind them and also the benefit of continuity where uh, they get to uh, continue what they have uh, perhaps started in the first 5 years we thought we we could talk about what should be the agenda for this incoming government what are the short term and long term things they should be looking at uh, where do we start thinking about this uh, from narayan uh pavan i actually uh, wanted to explore one one thought uh, with you even before we get into the idea of what the priorities and the specific agenda might be and that is uh, what i call the theory of change for for governments and for societies and 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 one might well ask the question do democracies particularly in emerging markets 
reform when they have their only when they have their backs to the wall or are they capable of reforming right through their development period somewhat regardless of where they are in their macroeconomy or microeconomy uh history would suggest that uh emerging markets typically uh, reform only when things are really bad uh in our own history as you know the most uh, magnificent set of reforms were set in place after a rather bleak period that arose in 91 with the balance of payments crisis and it was only and only then that we began the process of opening up and uh, set in place a set of reforms similarly in latin america which has been through many many uh, cycles uh the real plan in brazil which sort of uh, until this day has managed to keep brazil out of trouble over the last 3 uh, or 4 decades uh came about only after the hyperinflation and significant default uh of the 70s uh, uh in brazil and so on so i mean we can go market by market and think of it on the other hand if you go through some of the east asian models you might say that for instance famously in south korea park chung hee who was actually the strong man in charge set a bunch of priorities and simply went after them in a methodical multi year fashion and got there it was not that the economy was in deep trouble he simply said macroeconomic stability was important he went after that once he had macroeconomic stability he actually went after a significant industrial policy that industrial policy initially favored industry and chemicals and so on as you may remember in the 70s and 80s right. and then subsequently evolved into an industrial policy that focused on semiconductors which as all of us know today famously south korea leads the world so to speak in uh, semiconductors particularly as it relates to the television sector so there have been both examples though in the main the examples have been more on the side of uh, doing it with back to the wall now this historic election comes about in the midst of this kind of question right will the narendra modi led new nda government nda 3.0 narendra modi 2.0 a reform uh when we have a slow boiling frog syndrome as opposed to a uh a collapse in uh in the economy so we have many areas of concern banking being one uh but we can talk more about that in a second but we don't have uh, an area of outright economic disaster and and one might think that you need economic disaster to <laughs> to get the reform so will the strong mandate necessitate will will it be a precursor to reform a bit difficult to say we'll have to see whether uh whether time, only time will tell you know in, when we talk about reform uh, i know that this is simplistic but uh, there are people who uh, will eventually benefit from various reforms so there are the, the benefit of a lot of reforms seem to be diffuse and positive to a large number of people but there'll be 
perhaps some incumbent, some people who end up feeling the pain, right? So uh, people talk about winners and losers all the time in this reform process. And maybe when um, there is an external crisis of some sort, people know that the pain already exists. So it's about how it's going to get distributed and absorbed in the system. But in a time of plenty or in a time when we don't have a crisis, maybe nobody is willing to bear that burden, right? Or the government of the day is not willing to um, you know, shift that burden, change change the rules up, change the advantages of various players in the system. So maybe that is why we see more reforms that happen during times of crisis. Yes. So yes, you're you're right that w- when the pain is widespread, then uh, people are more willing to take on uh, at least structural reform because they can see the benefit more clearly, even if it is to a smaller group of people. Uh, but when the pain is not widespread or when things are not that bad, then to voluntarily undertake some pain, you know, I think that's well observed. That could be one of the reasons why it's easier to reform when things are uh, when things are tough. But, but uh, having said that, I mean, we wouldn't call this a reform, but demonetization was something where a lot of Indians took the pain. And um, I mean, that pain did not uh, get a lot of people to lose confidence in the government, for example. Right. So there is some demonstrated ability that this government is capable of uh, retaining people's goodwill while inflicting, say, short term pain in certain sectors. Right. So anything is possible in the next five years. Yeah, I, Pavan, it's interesting. You you spoke first off about demonetization, at least in in a serious conversation about economic reform. I would not like to speak about demonetization. <laughs> it's more a political topic than it's an economic topic. But only, you're right. Only relevant so far as the pain and the, the pain part of trust. it is concerned. Yeah, no. But the question is, what are the benefits, and have the benefits actually come through? Right. And given that the characterization of the benefits itself changed over time, it's a bit difficult to yeah, measure. And that's... So I think we don't want to go down that path, but I think it's a useful observation. Now, the only additional thing I would say to what you mentioned, Pavan, about some people potentially gaining and some people gaining less or possibly even hurting for a while. The other dimension of structural reform is time. Right. Right. So sometimes it is you take short-term pain for long-term gain. So there's a time element, not only a group element, but a time element. But a third element is if you do nothing, then you get eaten alive uh, X years from now. That's difficult to imagine today for most people in society. But in many instances, that could be true. So take the banking crisis, for instance. While it is true that any reform today will potentially put at least some small group in trouble. As an example, public sector bank employees. Right. Right. If you come up with a set of structural reforms, at least in in one set of structural reform, you could postulate that they will have to undergo short-term pain. However, if you say that there will be anemic credit to the economy because of the situation we find ourselves in, and sort of paralyzed by that potential pain, we do nothing. Anemic credit five years from now, in the same way, will hurt more members of the entire society than what it costs to one group today. So I think it is this, the greater good of the greater many, 
argument or or uh, analysis and perception that any government particularly one that has won such a strong mandate needs to weigh in its approach because if it's analysis paralysis on a variety of things there's always will be winners and losers there may be winner losers today etc but so long as the reform makes long term sense uh, you have to weigh the benefits the pros and cons of it uh, properly and then use the political will in order to implement it that that would be the way i would think about it but enough said about how change comes about we can potentially go to what the change should be and the wonderful thing about uh, i think public policy and governments is that they still have the ability to surprise us uh, many times right so with this historical amount of political capital behind this new government what kind of reforms do you think the government needs to undertake um, and spend its political capital on yeah so i mean i think you know you talk to uh, lots of people you get many many ideas i think india is a cauldron of of many ideas but i think if you talk specifically around now with many people who think seriously about the subject i think almost all will agree that employment generation is job one so to speak for this government but however before i even get to the topic of employment generation i'd like to take a little detour and the detour i would like to take is on economic statistics itself if this government or any government uh, for that matter is serious about reform it needs to measure things in the economy properly and measurement in the economy typically falls in sort of three categories uh, high frequency medium frequency and then lower frequency annual or more high frequency data could be things like employment inflation and stuff like that now the last 5 years uh, the nda government nda 2.0 did not distinguish itself by what i would call world class governmental statistics instead it chose to occasionally politicize data and by so doing potentially undermined the power of the existing governmental statistical institutions um in fact famously a few uh senior statisticians resigned actually prior just prior to the elections right so i think it's very important that as a symbol that the government is serious about economic reform that they actually commit to and this is actually a statistical term but unbiased data give me honest data properly and uh, presented in a timely fashion then i can potentially diagnose the issue it's a little bit like if you investigated a patient and they had some complaints but the blood pressure and the blood work and the ct scan were being manipulated by the radiologist in order for for the radiologist to look good right <laughs> then you wouldn't be able to tell what the accurate diagnosis of the patient was and so i think it's it's imperative that the new government nda 3.0 as we're calling it commits to honest transparent high quality data uh staying on that topic for just a minute longer 
bizarrely, the very first decision, you can think of it as a decision, of this new government happened on the day after the election results were announced and prior to any new cabinet. Uh, and that decision, believe it or not, was the combination of what was called the Central Statistical Office with the NSSO into one new office under the Ministry of Statistics uh, called the uh, National Statistics Office. I actually think that as is the standard in, uh, for instance, the United Kingdom and Australia, this statistical office should report to what in those countries is called a bipartisan um, body. Uh, but in India, it could potentially report to a parliament. Right. And in that sense, be a little bit more neutral to what it's doing. The other thing that needs to happen with the National Statistical Office is that it needs a graft of high-quality talent. Uh, and, and India has absolutely world-class statisticians. Uh, the Indian Statistical Institutes, which many people don't know about, but in my view is as good, uh, perhaps even better in some instances than the IITs and the IAMs, uh, produce uh, truly first-rate first uh, statisticians. And so we have no dearth of talent. Uh, and we have a long history, right? The National Statistical, the NSSO has been running. I mean, it was quite a thing when it came out. It was the first of the kind in its world almost. And it's been uh, around. Certainly at its scale, it is. Yeah. And I don't know, do you know who actually implemented some of that? This was Mahanalobis? Or? Yeah, PC Mahalanobis. Some may quarrel with his economics being a little left of center. But regardless of that affiliation, if you simply went by the statistics of what he did, he was an ISI product. And certainly there could be no quarrel about how good he was on the statistical side of his function. And so I think, you know, we need to modernize what we're doing. Uh, we need to use more technology. Uh, we need it, to go more granular as well. We right? go like, more for granular. example, if you really want to know how the Indian economy is doing, we should probably know how well the Bangalore economy is doing. right? I mean, we don't have a growth rate for Bangalore's economy. And probably if India needs to grow at 8%, Bangalore probably needs to grow at what, 12%, 13% once you, you know, include the population growth and more. Uh, so if one year that growth is half of what it was last year that has big implications and currently we can't even diagnose such issues right that oh uh, this year ai is becoming more mainstream so the it sector in bangalore is suffering we don't know how to quantify the impact of something like that and so if we can't diagnose that problem if we can't measure it then we can't do anything to fix it so yeah cities are a topic for another discussion pavan and uh, India. But, that, but that's the direction in which we need to be I going. I think that's the right? direction we need to go. But uh, as you know, uh, the least powerful political position in the country today is the mayor of a city. Right. So there's there's all kinds of political and uh, financial devolution issues related to cities in India. But the, 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 the point you're making, which is that we need uh, we need to peel the onion and then put it back together again in order to... To understand statistics. And I don't think we have looked at it in that way for quite some time. So we absolutely need to contemporize how we collect data 
in a federal structure in such a manner that it gives us both aggregate data but disaggregated data at the same time. And we are far from that. And so, in a way, talking about economic priority in the absence of credible, transparent, unbiased, world-class data is a bit like shooting in the dark and hoping to hit whatever you're trying to hit in the dark. Uh, I'd much rather do it, you know, in, in daylight, and it's tough enough when you're shooting a mile away, <laughs> uh, uh, that you, you, you do it in, in, in proper light um, and with the proper tools. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's even before we get to economic priorities, we need to get to the topic of economic data. And particularly on the topic I mentioned, which is employment is job one, and employment statistics is the worst of the lot. Right. So it is actually rank poor today in India. So uh, I, I don't think it's worth the salt it's written, uh, the, the, the paper it's written on today. Uh, we have uh, unemployment numbers that range from 4% to 25%. <laughs> and uh, youth unemployment, as an example, anecdotally, youth employment, unemployment is a big issue. But statistically, we haven't the foggiest idea right. as to exactly what that is or what that means. And until we do we diagnose it properly, I don't think we'll be in a position to actually address it uh, head on. But let me keep that aside for a moment and perhaps we can talk about employment itself. Yeah, employment itself. I mean, my big question is how does a government create jobs? And what, I mean, I feel like if the government starts thinking, okay, what do I do to create jobs? I mean, I fear going down an NREGA route or some other route, right? So how, what's the right thinking frame for uh, job creation? Before I get into what might touch on industrial policy, let me again say a couple of things. First, in any economy, the biggest job creators, what are called SMEs, small and medium enterprises, and in India, you might even call them nano enterprises, even smaller enterprises than the small enterprises. So if you want to think about it, and if you have to focus somewhere, you have to focus your attention on these, uh, these entities. So that's, that's the first observation. The second observation is that in any economy, these type of entities create the most jobs when there is macroeconomic stability. I think this is one area we have actually made progress in the last even five years, but certainly over the last 10 or 15. So that's low inflation, the currency, uh, the exchange rate should not fluctuate too much, should be reasonably stable, right? Two things or anything more at the core of this? Well, inflation coming from two sides, inflation coming through the current account deficit or inflation coming through the fiscal deficit. Right. So in that sense, uh, both government accounts, how the budget is spent, as well as how the the forex and uh, uh, import export uh, implications are managed through the current account, these are the two uh, other areas in right. addition to inflation. And so they're all related, but that's the macro economy. So if you talk about the miracle of East Asia, the most uh, fundamental thing they did was they created macroeconomic stability. So that is, I think, essential. But the good news here is that India is going down the right path to create macroeconomic stability. Of course, with populism being in force everywhere, one has to watch whether this fiscal side of this right. explodes again. 
I mean, there is there is slight fiscal expansionism, but it's not huge. So we have to watch whether it becomes very large. I think just the only point I would mention on macroeconomic stability, therefore, is that I think it's a shame that uh, a self-respecting country like India runs a revenue deficit. Um, I think we should set an explicit goal to eliminate the revenue deficit. We've only come once close to doing it, and that was in 2006-7, have thereafter not done it uh, before or since. And we have invented things like the effective revenue deficit and other things as well. Those are all camouflages to the underlying notion that even without including debt service, the expenditure of the government exceeds the revenues of the government. I think that is a crying shame. And that requires tax reform, that requires an economy that delivers on a higher potential than we have today, etc., So that's a whole new discussion. But suffice it to say that I think we are moving in the direction of macroeconomic stability, Mm -hmm. but we would get even further down that path if we explicitly set and achieved a goal of at least revenue neutrality um, and, and maybe eliminating the primary deficit. Fiscal deficits itself can be carried for a little while longer if they are moderate and they're managed. So India can manage a 2 to 3% federal fiscal deficit for a long time. But I would strongly recommend that we maintain a a zero primary deficit. So suffice for that little bit, except for that little bit, I would think we are on the path towards macroeconomic stability. So that's one important element for employment creation. Are imports and exports, I mean, there's been a challenge, right? Exports have been steadily dropping. So can there be pressure from the current account as well that we can foresee in the near future? Yeah, India's balance of trade is an issue. Uh, in general, right? And because, it's become worse, right? Yeah, well, it goes up and down. Today, uh, the current account is is negative 2%, which for a growing economy is manageable. Mm-hmm. It mostly swings an oil price. Right. But even more than just a numeric swing and the actual quantity of the deficit, it's it's what we call terms of trade, right? So, for instance, India's bilateral trade with China is the fastest growing bilateral trade it has with any country. Mm-hmm. However, its terms of trade with China are pathetic, pathetic for India. We export unfinished goods and we buy finished goods from China. And we need much more balance in that uh, relative finish, if you want to call it that way, right. where we also export more, say, software, for instance, uh, to China and less iron ore. And China exports fewer toys and potentially more errors. Um, to us, right? So the balance on the terms of trade needs to be a little, swing a little bit more in our favor. And the only way we can do that is by upgrading the value content of of our economy. So yes, you could potentially get pressure through the current account. Uh, one, if oil prices go off the off kilter. But two, if India doesn't continuously upgrade uh, its its value content in the economy and in terms of trade with many economies uh, turn adverse, then we will have a problem. But it's not a large problem, right. but it could be an evolving problem as India's both imports and exports go up in magnitude terms. So supposing all of this is stable, it's happy, it's being managed. Then the last bit is, is credit, which is itself related to another major area of reform that we'll come to in a second, which is the, the banking sector. 
So if you have macroeconomic stability, if you have, uh, uh, you know, some form of uh, credit flowing, particularly to SMEs, mm -hmm. then you can have employment generation primarily through the private sector. The private sector will invest and will grow because it too can see that the economy is growing from 2 trillion to 3 trillion to 4 trillion. And somebody has to provide the services and the goods related to $4 trillion economy. Right. And the delta itself is bigger than the level of the economy that we saw from only a few years ago. So the private sector will step in when once it has stability. However, the, the government, even before we get to the idea of industrial policy, can do a couple of things. And the most important things that the government needs to focus on, in my view, is that the entire chain of streaming high school students into the vocational stream. So essentially sort of allowing people to select which way they're headed. Either they're going academic track or vocational track. That's number one. Number two, dramatically upgrading the vocational content that we have today, primarily delivered through ITIs. Which yeah, is stuck in another era. Stuck in another era, it doesn't, it's not contemporary. Doesn't have scale. Uh, doesn't have scale, doesn't match people to jobs. So it's actually a failed proposition. Now, do you reform ITIs or do you blow them up and start again? A long topic, but whatever it is, it needs to be fixed. So I would say one major area the government can play a role is fix the vocational training stream. And that is filtering people into vocation uh, vocational training, fixing the vocational training system, and then allowing the vocational training system to be contemporary and jobs-oriented. So that's that's one whole idea. Could you give us a picture here of when we talk about vocational training, you know, example jobs that people be doing at the end of something like this that we need in large numbers? I mean, you name it. I, I'll give you an example, and this just comes from my home. My dad used to be on something uh, on, a, on a home respirator. The home respirator requires once a day specialist respiratory technician to come by and actually set certain parameters on the ventilator in such a fashion that it actually works, uh, works for the patient. Many people don't know the profession exists. Right. Uh, even if you know it exists, you don't know where to go to study it. Uh, it's not available systematically. Most people just learn it on the job in one hospital or another. And uh, it's not systematically taught, not systematically employed, and there's no systematic career path. And this is just one random uh, example in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a healthcare chain. There are so many examples in healthcare, in IT, uh, in any of these modern... Take voiceovers. I mean, in today's world, voice as as a method of uh, content creation is uh, is an excellent opportunity. How many people know it's an option? People fall into it, right? And everyone wants to be an actor, but this yeah, and this is just a fine way. And some people have a powerful, uh, highly articulate and communicative voice, but they don't even know that this is an option that exists for them, and it's very difficult to train for it. Uh, and these are the kinds of jobs that will increase in number as the economy becomes more complex and as wealth increases. Right? Yeah. Take social media. Every company I know that I'm on the board of 
is struggling on how to manage its social media content and how to respond and be present and so on on social media. Yeah. Uh, underserved today in for many, many companies. So I think professional and IT has don't touch any of this with a 10-foot pole, right? They're still training somebody on a lathe in a theoretical, completely unused fashion. And at the same time, you know, Toyota Kerlaskar in, in Bangalore doesn't pick them up because what they have trained in ITI doesn't work for a modern semi-robotic automobile chain. So they pick up somebody random and train them at their factory all over again to do the same job that ostensibly this lathe operator in, in the ITI is training for. But, but so you now have a lathe operator who's, you know, trained on an analog lathe from the 1960s. Right, the stuff that we'd have in our engineering college. Years and years ago, <laughs> yeah. which was obsolete then. So if you do it now, it's definitely obsolete. It's sort of like firing with an SMLE 303 today, right? It was obsolete in the Second World War. <laughs> and yet most of our chaukidas who are allowed to carry a weapon carry this SMLE 303. It's, <laughs> it's meaningless. It, it, it makes no sense against a AK-47. Uh, so, so even in that function, right, where you might have, say, a private sector security unit mm -hmm. that is, you know, defending, uh, protecting someone, if you don't give them the right tools and the right training, right. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it doesn't, doesn't quite work. So you can pick a function after function, the ability for our vocational training scheme to train. Um, there is a problem is who pays for this training? Uh, we won't deal with that topic today, but it's an important problem. But that should not hold up, you know, the, the fact that we need to contemporize uh, vocational training. First filter, first make aware that there is a choice, not look down upon these people because they haven't stayed on the academic track. So we now have underemployed academics, right? right? Because you get a degree in whatever you're getting, and then you end up as a sales clerk on a, in a grocery chain. That's underemployment. You, you don't need to do that. Whereas you could go down a vocational path and potentially do better for yourself financially and certainly better for yourself in an emotional and, and self-esteem sense. So, so I think vocational training is... The, the second part is, is apprenticeship. Uh, India, for its size, has a pathetically small apprentice program today. And it's partly because of the way the laws are written. Apprentices have historically in India been treated as employees. And because they're employees, they need to be, you know, ESI and all of the benefits that are given to employees. And that makes it cost prohibitive for employers to try them. And therefore, the, the program has been dead on arrival for the last 30 or 40 years. Now, the laws have changed on apprenticeships. And finally, you can actually, uh, on a time-bound way, engage apprentices in a manner in which it is actually financially viable for the employer. So I think the government can do a lot to popularize the fact that the laws have changed and encourage established companies and SMEs to take on people on an apprenticeship program so that they learn on the job in a manner in which it is affordable to employers. So I think these are two big areas of uh, of government uh, action 
that could dramatically change employment. A third area, before we get again to industrial <coughs> policy, is that government can obviously balance away from government consumption towards government infrastructure. And the more government balances towards government infrastructure, the more the ability for employment, whether that's just in the construction area or whether it's building new airports or new ports or new highways. I mean, India needs new infrastructure in pretty much anything you can imagine it needs new infrastructure in. And uh, some or a lot of that can come from government. But given that resources are stretched, that will have to come from a balance away from government consumption right. towards government investment. So that's the third area. The fourth area for employment uh, is industrial policy. And of course, it's controversial as to whether a country should have industrial policy or not. Uh, but I think at least... But, uh, but tell me what it is. The, is the idea of industrial policy that the government places bets on certain industries and provides infrastructure and policy to promote certain industries? So is the government like trying to pick winners? Is that what it is? Yes, in a, in a way, that's what it is, right? Which is the gov- but but the government doesn't do that in a vacuum. Sure. Uh, the government, I mean, just for a moment, let's take another detour. And let's think about the Olympics. And let's say India wants to get a medal, right? Let's just say the whole nation is organized beyond getting one medal that it didn't have before. Would you start? in something where you had absolutely nothing at all, no history, no people, no talent, say synchronized swimming? Or would you start in wrestling or shooting or badminton where India has demonstrated at least a reasonably good international success? The, the, the simple answer is, of course, you will start where there is some... So it is in effect, to use the Olympics example, it would be similar to us investing in wrestling, badminton, shooting, boxing, uh, hockey, cricket, kabaddi, etc. Where you see, you visibly maybe see middle potential. distance running if you want to get really particular, <laughs> right. rather than short or long, right? Whereas India has had reasonable success. Maybe women's athletics slightly more than men's athletics, where women, men, uh, where India has had success, and so on. So you could potentially say without being ultra narrow in your definition, like we will only pick, you know, one thing, you could say we'll pick a bunch of things. And then we will do a few things in order to, uh, to actually deliver on an objective. So in a manner of speaking, that's what industrial policy is. That's what uh, Korea famously did in the 70s with respect to its chemical technology first. And that's what Japan's MITI does, and so on. Now, to some extent, every country has either a state or an unstated industrial policy. So the United States, which would cringe at the idea that it has an industrial policy, in some manner does when the National Institutes of Health and the, you know, DARPA, which is the organization that comes from uh, the, the information services organization related to the U.S. military, funds a bunch of projects, right? And those projects famously created the internet, for instance, right. but could create other uh, new innovations. So uh, industrial policy comes in many forms, uh, and that is one, one such form. So, for instance, India could create an industrial policy that at least modestly favored 
putting small satellites in space. That's the strength that ISRO has demonstrated. And maybe you don't necessarily do it only through the public sector, but potentially the private sector as well, where India focuses on small satellites right. as an example um, in space science. So this is going beyond things like, okay, I will set up an SCZ for a certain sector, right? Because India has done a lot of that, right? Okay, we'll have an aerospace SCZ here, we'll throw some tax ops yeah, there. I think, yeah, I think just tax ops and physical real estate were yesterday's game. That was Guangzhou 1989. Mm. That cannot be India 2019. Uh, that had a time and place, but it's gone. Okay. Today, you need route to market. You need legal help. You need social media help. So you need to create a clustering effect of the hardware and software that will deliver product to market. Mm. Right? Take crafts in India. India, as everybody famously knows, has got a spectrum and diverse array of crafts. But making a marble Taj Mahal for an audience that doesn't want marble Taj Mahals is useless. So now the question is, is can there be a design cluster and a marketing cluster organized around marble Taj Mahals that takes that craftsmanship and adapts it to today's world? That's the question, right? If that marble Taj Mahal can instead become something that you and I use every day, you know, maybe an iPod holder or, or something. I, I, I don't know what it would be, but whatever it is, that's what, I mean, and of course you could argue that marble itself is environmentally unfriendly and so on. So we won't get into that debate, <laughs> but I was using it merely as an example that even in craft, you might need to contemporize and, uh, and, and get a route to market for, for the demand rather than simply insisting that the product is what it is. And I have to find demand for it. So would this also mean ideas like setting up a sovereign wealth fund where absolutely the government has this sort of investment vehicle where they, again, independently take bets and um, take risk as well, right? The, a lot of this is risk investment with, you know, um, low probability, high uh, return. But, but those are the kinds of risks that DARPA and others also take, right? Yeah, now... I think this is now where we cross into the territory of controversy for two reasons. One is India in a position to fund these sovereign wealth funds and use those sovereign wealth funds to make capital allocation. So the controversy on capital allocation on industrial policy comes when people say the governments around the world have demonstrated a historical inability to allocate capital properly. And so I think, you know, it is this question of capital allocation that goes against the issue of industrial policy. But even without getting to sovereign wealth funds, you could potentially say, catalyze a bunch of funds, which actually the NDA 2.0 did, that in turn are organized to take risk in various sectors. Right? So in a way, it's a fund of funds, if you will, right. where the risk-taking is actually farmed out to the private sector rather than it's on the government's books. That may be an intermediate step for India before India actually creates uh, a full-fledged sovereign wealth fund. All right. So, but I feel like, so now we've, there are several steps starting from macroeconomic stability all the way to how to allocate capital. 
and hopefully some of these still set the stage for jobs, right? Vocational training. Some of these have a longer term effect. Some of them might have might uh, start showing us more immediate results. Um, let's maybe take a very quick break and come back and talk about what else other than employment India should be focusing on, and if there's something about employment that we missed out. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another incredible week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. A couple of messages up top. First, we're hiring right now. We're looking to hire a producer. We're looking to hire copywriters. We're looking to hire an audio engineer. We're looking for web developers. We're looking for business people. If you're looking to work at IVM, which in my opinion is probably one of the best places to work at, then please do send us an application. Also, please do download our app if you're not listening to it on our app. Our app is available on the Play Store. And I also want to thank our sponsors this month, uh, Savari, Storytel, and Paytm Money. Thank you very much for supporting us. On Cyrus Says, Cyrus is joined by Mayank Shekhar, film critic and editorial head of Midday Entertainment. They talk about their memories from St. Xavier's prom nights, Mayank's very first encounter with Cyrus, the recently concluded elections, and Mayank's process of writing. On the Filter Coffee podcast, Ronnie Skruwala joins Karthik Nagarajan to talk about his early days as an entrepreneur and what has kept him going during adversities. And if that's not enough Ronnie Skruwala for you, listen to his podcast, The Ronnie Skruwala Podcast, where Ronnie talks to me about the benefits and disadvantages of being an outsider, building a brand identity and the learnings from collaborating with business giants across the world. On Business.next, Govindraja Thiraj is joined by author Jason Jennings. They talk about the key ingredients that are crucial in building a high-speed economy. On Geek Fruit, Tejas Alika and special guest Ishan Krishna of Bayanak Moth go down Nostalgia Lane and discuss the world of Pokemon, including the newly released Pokemon Detective Pikachu. On Simplified, Chuck Narain and Shriket discuss the origins of the Yeti, Loch Ness Monsters, Bigfoot and other cryptic creatures. On States of Anarchy, Hansini's guest is Benjamin Katzer Silverstein. He's from the Foreign Policy Research Institute and he busts myths about the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. And with that, let's get you on with your show. Welcome back to the Prakriti Podcast. I'm Pavan Srinath and I'm here with Narayan Ramachandran and we're talking about what should be the agenda for the next government of India. Uh, Narayan, we've spent the bulk of our uh, conversation so far, one talking about you know, how reforms happen, how we need statistical information systems in place properly and about the biggest challenge, which is employment. But there are other fires that are burning as well. And one the big one, and we've discussed this in the past as well, is banking. So how should the, we look at the next five years and what we should do with banking reform and what's happened in the last five years? There were some positives uh, on that front, right? So, yeah, banking is a big area of reform, mostly because we now have inherited, once again, a banking system that is sort of perfect for the 1960s and 70s, but not perfect for the 21st century. So this idea that uh, a country as large and diverse as India needs both uh, a very large nationalized banking system, number one, and number two, that 40% of the total banking system needs to be organized towards priority sector loans. I think both of these will be subject to change over the next 20, 30 years. Uh, it's simply obsolete for the economy that India will become. And therefore, how that is to be reorganized 
should be thought in a long strategic arc. Of course, that long strategic arc needs to fit into a much shorter strategic arc, which finds ourselves in a, you know, pick a $100 billion sort of NPA hole at the same time that we are on the verge of entering Basel III in terms of capital adequacy uh, and so on. So we have a five-year problem and a 25-year problem, if you want to think of it that way. And both sort of indicate that we'd better get on with this idea of of denationalizing the banking sector. Now, whether we denationalize every bank or not is, is a matter of discussion, but we certainly need to begin the process. Now, most people have spoken about banking reform as essentially a fix on the equity capital, given how poorly the loan side of the balance sheet has done. But I think that is that is only part of the solution. The real problem and the real culprit, if you want to put it that way, is that the governance system for public sector banks is hopelessly uh, inadequate and seems unaccountable to anybody, not accountable to the people, not accountable to the markets, and not accountable to government. And and therefore, it is sort of, there is political interference, which it takes it down one path, and then uh, you get these NPAs every five, ten years, and that simply doesn't cut it. I think the first thing that we need to do is to separate the ownership of these banks from the government. So even before you go into privatizing, just carve it out and and put it into an ETF, for example. And that way you can create an empowered agency that then looks after this ETF. So in a way, it's at least putting a moat around the bank saying you can't touch these banks. They are no longer governments. Yes, you own a financial interest, but you're not the equity owner of the bank. Uh, in the in the classic sense of the term, which is directing the bank to do this or that or the other thing. So the fiduciary responsibility becomes the objective of this other entity, no longer the government. Correct. In, I mean, government is the ultimate owner, at least until the ownership is transferred. Right. However, government is not saying, give me this dividend this year, that dividend next year, or uh, lend here, don't lend there. All those you put a little wall around and you allow this a meritocratic, talented agency to actually manage this ETF. That's number one. Number two, again, as a symbol more than anything else, I think they should privatize IDBI. Uh, IDBI is privatizable, if I can call it that way, because of all the, the public sector banks, it's actually the only one that is actually a private limited company. So, in fact, there is no regulatory reason not to privatize IDBI. You actually have to change some regulation in order to privatize the other banks. Okay. What are they? They're not private limited or public limited? They are actually government limited companies. So, they are are owned by government. Okay. And uh, SBI, as you know, uh, has its own act. So, there's a SBI act that is separate from all the others. Of course, there's been a little bit of consolidation there where all the the mini SBIs have been merged into the SBI. Five or six of them have gone into the SBI, which is a good thing. And we have also seen, I think, Vijaya Bank and Dana Bank Dana and, Bank, and Bank of Baroda merging into one. So there's some consolidation that, that has taken place. So that's so, a good thing. That's a, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, let's say it's not a bad thing. 
<laughs> I don't know how good it is. It partly depends on how, how well people... But but in the sense that the three of them were not adding value, it's better to be one than three. In that sense, it's good. But putting three weak banks together doesn't necessarily make a strong bank. So okay. consolidation is okay, but not great in this this context. Not the SBI one, the others. Um, so that said, I think if, if IDBI as a symbol can be privatized. Now, RBI did a typical Indian thing. Again, not so long ago, in March of this year, they declared IDBI a private sector bank. Okay. You know why? Because LIC owns their shares? Exactly. So <laughs> LIC owns now more than 50% of IDBI. And in by a stroke of the pen, because of that, uh, RBI said, now you're a private sector bank. <laughs> I don't know whether that means it's a precursor to true privatization or not, or it's just a, a fig leaf. Uh, but but the RBI did that. So so we'll have to wait and see. But I think as a symbol, now the typical things have started. Pressure has started from IDBI employees saying they need to be allowed to be transferred into the other banks okay. because they will lose their governmental seniority and so on. So back to a question you had asked earlier in the podcast, uh, Pawan, about how reforms affect some people positively and others negatively. I think it's important to actually think through that. Mm. And if a bunch of people are going to be affected negatively, then design a proper system to cushion that negativity. I think it's important. Right. Because that is where you get the backlash against any reform move. Right. It's easy to understand in the context of a dam, for instance. Right. If you're building a dam, you're going to displace a bunch of people. Now, if you don't take care of those people properly then forever they are going to be against the concept of the dam. Right. Now, the dam may or may not be a good idea. That has to be evaluated. But once you've decided to do it, you need to do the right thing by these people and, and, and put them in proper accommodation and give them livelihoods and so on. In the same way, I think if you're displacing former government employees of IDBI, then you need a proper uh, scheme to ensure that their interests are taken care of but in the new construct that it will be privatized. Right. You can't keep it all the constructs open in such a manner that they are appeased. Right. They have to be heard, but not appeased, right. so, which is a non-trivial project, but has to be done. But India has done this before in the banking sector, right? In the 90s, late 90s, the, with computerization coming in, uh, the golden handshake that was offered to so many bank employees was reasonably successful. And yeah, that's a VRS was, kind of system, a voluntary right. retirement scheme. So you you have to do a package of uh, right. such things. A voluntary retirement scheme would be one thing. A reassignment scheme would be one. Potentially a transfer scheme could be another. So it might be uh, many of the above kind right. of answers. But whatever it is, you, you thought through and do it. Just saying it's an issue and not handling it, it doesn't get you to the other side, right. number one. Or saying, because it's an issue, we're not going to privatize. That's also not a solution. Same problem with Air India privatization, right. right? It is the strong objection from others is, so what we tend to do in India is we tend to allow private sector competition in such a manner that the government entity eventually dwindles to nothing. Hmm. That is a very poor way of managing. Why not actually either privatize the government entity or allow the government to entity to compete in a modern way is a much better way, I think, instead of sort of letting them fade away. Right. I mean, Air India itself has gone from being the largest, you know, market share airline in the country uh, 
Correct. And now being number four, I think, or is either three or four, right. even with the failure of Jet Airways. So in the same way. So anyway, so I think it's it's important that we begin the process of changing the governance structure of banks. Okay. And one way to do that is privatization. Now, of course, the critics would argue that private sector banks have not distinguished themselves in governance glory. Yeah, we've true. seen enough scandals. In in, enough scandals years. in the private sector as well. That is true. But that doesn't negate the fact that a proper regulator with an independent board is still the least bad way of organizing this thing. And therefore, I think we have we have got to give it a try. So and does RBI need much more sophisticated regulatory ability as well? Yes. Uh, uh, well, I don't know. Sophisticated to... is the right word, but it certainly needs famously what the previous governor said. It needs the ability to actually take action against private sector banks were it to find an issue. Okay. The government had simply said that the RBI can observe issues but cannot act on them with respect to public sector banks. So in that sense, the playing field has to be level for RBI as well. But they have the ability to observe right now. Yes. Okay. Yeah, they get all the information from public sector banks. Mm-hmm. They simply can't so motor act like okay. they can act with private sector banks. Okay. So that needs to be leveled as one example. But I think the regulatory side of this is only one. I think the governance is the bigger problem. If the governance problem is fixed, so for instance, let's say IDBI is allowed to pass to credible private sector hands, you will instantly get capital. Capital is not coming, not because capital is not available, but because capital is skeptical of the current governance structure and is not sure that that governance structure will permit you to get out of the hole. And that's what capital does. I mean, capital wants a return. And if capital holders can see a return, they will they will certainly provide it. So I think that, you know, with this mandate that the new government has, back to that mandate again, uh, it's high time that we started the privatization process. IDBI should be pretty straightforward. And then whether we can do one or two more with both, I think you need legal law changes as well for that. But if you can do that and then get one or two more going, I think then we would really be making material progress. Equity capital will come from the markets the instant you change the governance structure. That is and, my and momentum will be built up, right? Taking one step after another. Absolutely, yeah. So Absolutely. that's wonderful. And so the key challenge is to start showing momentum on this yes. uh, in the near future. I mean, there's already talk of a hundred day plan for the new government and so on. So you would want something like this to be featured. Uh, on yeah, it. and it can't be incremental. Okay. Right? I mean, if I were to charge the NDA 2.0, the previous government, with a position, it would be that they are project-oriented and statist, right? They like campaigns, both (laughs) electoral (laughs) and uh, economic, and they believe in the power of government. Instead, what they need to convert themselves is to policy-oriented and market-friendly. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shift. I, I don't honestly know, and this is actually a term that was used in the, in the Financial Times, this conversion from project status to policy market friendly. I'm not sure whether they have it in them to do it. Presumably, if they get the right set of cabinet ministers, they can, because one prime minister cannot do all of this, even right. though uh, ostensibly the charge was South Block was attempting to do everything. But a competent group of cabinet ministers, particularly in finance, 
can, I think, achieve this conversion as it relates to bank reform, which I think is becoming more and more and more necessary. The, the fact that you need pain is no longer an option. I think we're going to have to take pain in some form because lack of credit in the economy will kill this economy three years out, five years out, seven years out. And we can't afford that if India needs to become prosperous for inclusive and prosperous in the next five, 10 years. So, Narayan, we can talk endlessly from sort of sector to sector. But the one um, thing that I want to talk to you about, which has also been a fire that's been burning, is what's happening with uh, not just rural India, but specifically with agriculture. Right. Uh, once the backbone of the economy, far from it now, but still a lot of people dependent on it. And uh, every kind of risk imaginable manifests itself in the agricultural sector, right? Everything from, you know, the balance, you know, the fiscal deficit and other things to subsidies to the weather to everything else. How, and there have been ideas about loan waivers, the Congress threw in the idea of Nyai and other things, but how do we really manage uh, agricultural distress? How can the government of India, where agriculture is also a state subject, uh, make a credible difference in the space? Oh, that's the second order question. Let's stick with the first order question for a moment. I think the issue is not agricultural distress. The issue is agricultural productivity. Okay. And too little attention has been paid to that uh, over time. And that results in distress. And of course, when there's distress, you have to deal with distress before you can deal with any long-term issues like right. productivity. But the underlying issue is that of productivity. And productivity, both at the unit level, which means at the level of each fragmented farm, and productivity in the aggregate, which means that, you know, rather shamefully, India has not even increased 1% area in irrigable land in the 70 years since independence. So we remain at 48% of our land being um, irrigated, and that's it. Yeah, everything, everything else, else is, is rain-fed. And groundwater. Yeah, both of those are notoriously unreliable and now subject to all kinds of environmental issues. So, um, I, I, you know, I think the focus on agriculture production... By the way, this is not just a failure of this government or, or yeah. the immediately prior government. It's been a failure for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, we had a brief period in Green Revolution in which... Uh, we handled some of these things and, and 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 with the concomitant white revolution for about 10 15 years we actually had a dramatic increase in productivity but thereafter there's been stagnation everywhere which has resulted in the issue that we have today which is that 55% of the population is is dependent on the rural household but only 15 16% of gdp comes from agriculture Right. So there's a significant mismatch. By the way, it's also related to the employment problem, right? If there was an automatic avenue for employment, then that 55 would go down towards right. the search for employment and and it would reduce by itself. So you need an employment opportunity to fit with agricultural productivity. Right. I mean, there have been, been some, uh, again, theories of change in how development has happened. One of the things people have seen is also when there is agricultural prosperity, at least one wave of it, people are actually able to exit agriculture with that capital and then get into whatever else. So in fact, agricultural prosperity might be a prerequisite to moving large numbers of people from the agricultural sector to industry or something else also. Uh, absolutely agree. So I think, I mean, it, it creates only good 
consequences economically. And therefore, I think it's about time that that's what we focused on. And agriculture productivity is everything from higher quality seeds to much better crop planning than we have, uh, superior water usage. Everybody and his brother tries to go sugarcane, no matter whether we have water or not. Right. And that's a bad idea. I mean, there are certain parts of the country, you know, northern Telangana, for instance, which should not have a, an acre of sugarcane because there's no water. Um, and instead, we should go with arid cropping and uh, so on. So I think this uh, lots of technical, technological inputs that need to go into productivity. Uh, mechanization is rank poor in mm, huge parts of the country. But that's just the, the farming side. Then the question is, how do the farm products go from farm to market? Right. And there are way too many intermediaries. And much of the value is sucked out by the intermediaries rather than the farmer. Right. So there need to be a lot more direct access of the, for the farmer to the intermediaries. We have, in the last 30, 40 years, focused on exactly the wrong things, which is we have focused on loan waivers, which keeps farmers and others in the rural household addicted to this the cycle of loan forgiveness on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, we have essentially told them it doesn't matter. You do what you like and uh, we'll support you with MSPs. A high support price for, for agriculture has a perverse incentive for the demand side of the house. And that's right. the classic sort of economic graph. As the price goes up, goes the, so goes the demand. And it doesn't help anyone if you put a floor on the price and say that will go to the farmer because demand simply drops to that floor price so that it clears. And that doesn't help uh, the farmer. So in a, bizarrely, the market price, when things are good, the price drops and the farmer doesn't make enough money. When things are bad, the price stays high and demand is not there to fulfill. And it's just sort of a tough situation that the farmer in. So I think this direct price interference is not a good idea. Prices should be much more market oriented, but that requires the need for a cushion. So in that sense, I actually prefer the NDA model to the Nyai scheme. The Nyai scheme was across the board right. and to many, many people. And it was debatable whether we could actually fund it. But the NDA scheme is, is specific to farmers and is an attempt to cushion a change. Now, of course, the NDA has not spelt out the change. So in that sense, it's flawed. Right. But it allows the opportunity for creating change. And that's why we should actually have, it's certainly not universal basic income. It's right. basic income to farmers. So it's a very targeted idea. But basic income to farmers must come together with uh, agriculture reform because that's what it allows the opportunity for. So far, our imagination in agriculture reform has been very poor. And I think if in the next 10 years we don't make that a priority, I think we will not be doing the right thing for our farmers and our rural households, and they represent, you know, 50-55% of our population today. Uh, perhaps along with primary education, agricultural extension has been one thing that historically governments have led, 
right? I mean, in, I mean, there have been agricultural universities that have been set up in the United States in various parts which have transformed the dairy sector, their agriculture and so on. But so that is the key challenge, right? Independent India after the 60s has not been able to provide agricultural extension, which is the right Support. cropping, the right things, and then allowing markets and others to be able to provide those goods and services that farmers need. So, but that's big, right? I mean, this is not something that India has changed uh, its policy significantly in the last few years. The only good thing I think over the last five years has been um, market liberalization. So the old monopoly that uh, APMCs had, I think they've started to... um, you know, bite them at the edges. I think Karnataka has done quite a bit. And there's at least been an intention to move towards the national agricultural market. right? So hopefully, I mean, if that is continued, that's at least one part of this agricultural reform. Yeah, agreed, I think. But we need to do a lot more, lot faster than, than we are doing currently on agriculture. And so in summary, Pavan, I would say, I mean, there's there's loads of priorities. Right. But the whole point about prioritization is to leave something in and leave something out. Otherwise, you'll try to do everything and do nothing in in the bargain. So I would say to you that these are three areas that are very important for this new government to tackle. Employment, banking reform, and agriculture. And if they make a serious dent in these three, particularly in the first two, three years of the administration, I think then India's road to middle income uh, will get a lot easier than it currently looks. Narayan, thank you so much for coming on the Pragati podcast. As always, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Pawan. Bye. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions or comments, do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. And hey, if you like the podcast and listen to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. It'll mean a lot to us. The Pragati Podcast is available on the IVM Podcast app and pretty much every other podcast app and platform. We are there everywhere. Hi, my name is Anupam Gupta. I'm B50 on Twitter. I am the host of Pesa Pesa, the show that talks money. On my show, I speak to experts from every field of money and finance, from stock markets, equities, debt funds, credit cards, life insurance, every possible area of money and finance that you can think of. We even did an episode on cryptocurrency. I've got fantastic guests from mutual funds to personal finance experts everywhere. Robo-Advary, startups, just name it, we've got it. At Pesa Pesa, we help you make smart decisions about money. You work hard for money. Now make your money work hard for you. New episodes out every Monday and you can listen to my show on the IVM Podcast app or any other podcasting app that you have. Pesa Vesa is brought to you by Paytm Money. Hi, I'm Vishal Gondal, an entrepreneur. I've had the chance to meet and understand how some of the super achievers have hacked their way to success and they have done spectacular innovations. Now I take a closer look at these people's lives to find out what lies beneath the force only on the Vishal Gondal show. Episodes out fortnightly on Wednesdays on the IVM website, app or your favorite podcasting platform.